Good morning, church family. Uh, just like Pastor Adam and Pastor Seth alluded to earlier, my name is Cody Thomas. If we haven't got the chance to meet, I'd love to meet you after our service. And I have the honor and privilege to be our student pastor here at Community. And so, yeah. so those are the individuals that I have to put up with every week. And so that's usually whenever I announce that I get to work with our 7th through 12th graders, that's instantly when people say, man, I don't know how you do that. I'll be praying for you because not only do we have to teach them about the atoning work of Christ on the cross, cleansing them of their sin, but oftentimes we have to teach them about the power of the cleansing work of a shower at camp. And that just happens sometimes. Junior high boys, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. And so, and I mean, it's just like Mary and Martha. They said, Jesus, we don't know if we want Lazarus to come out of the tomb. He's been in there for four days. The smell is going to be pretty bad. Sometimes at camp it smells like a dead man's been in there, but that's a story for another time. And thinking about camp, we all have traditions, maybe when you grew up going to kids camp or youth camp that you took part in, or maybe there's different traditions that you as a family hold, maybe around Christmas, Easter, different things like that. Maybe that you've celebrated since your childhood. Maybe it's a new one that you added whenever you and your spouse were married or you had your first child. Or maybe it's those dreaded New Year's resolutions that we seem to traditionally pick up every year on January 1st, saying I'm going to go to the gym more often, and then traditionally by February 1st, we're already done with that resolution, and it just seems to go that way. And I want you guys to think of what's one of your most treasured traditions you've been a part of. For me, one that just stuck to my mind as I was writing this sermon, as I was thinking through this, was back whenever I was in high school, I graduated from Broken Arrow and I had the opportunity to march with the marching band there all four years of my high school career. And there was a tradition that we took part in that started long before I was a part of the group. We continued through my four years there, and they still do to this day. And that tradition is after any time we had a performance, whether it be a practice or at a competition or anything like that, we'd gather together at the band, either on the field, if it was afterwards, maybe outside the field as we were about to dismiss to go forward with what we had rest for that, that day or whatever it may be, and we'd get together and recite what we had known as the Pride Creed, which is a little mantra we had for our group, and as we would do so, we would hold up one finger like this. Now, to the outside individual looking in, there was often a lot of misconception about what we were doing in that moment, especially at competitions, because if you know anything about the Pride of BA, they have a luxurious history of winning a lot of events, and I had the opportunity to do some of that while I was there. And there were individuals that would come and say, man, that broken arrow band, how cocky and arrogant do they have to be to take the field? After they, we already know they won. It's announced and everything. They've done the expedition of their performance as the people who have won the competition. They come together and they hold up that finger to signify, man, we got first, we're number one, and we're the best. But there's a great misconception and miscommunication there because that's not what the tradition was about at all. You see, in fact, it was just the opposite. We're not saying how great we are. We're just talking about the unity of our group. And after whatever there would be any practice or performance, we'd end the creed with a tagline of it that says, for the strength of the pride is the member, and the strength of the member is the pride. Meaning as a group, we cannot accomplish what we do at practice or performance on and off the field without one another in the same way that we need each other to make these things happen. And we'd hold up the one, not to say our position or anything, but a unity within our group to say we're one band going after one cause together. But that's the thing about traditions, right? 
For the individuals who are in the know, they can celebrate that, they can take part in it, and they have an understanding of what it means and what it stands for. But to the outside individual who is uninitiated, if they are not communicated to what it represents and what it means, they can start to have different ideas and conceptions about what's happening that can be totally skewed in the wrong direction. And for us as the church, I think we're not exempt from this occurrence either. And one area where I believe this to be true is in the way that we've come to almost traditionally refer to our faith and our connection with God. As many of you know, as we talk about our faith journey and our our life with Christ, we describe it as a relationship with him. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with this terminology. In fact, God's word paints throughout its pages that we get to have a relationship with God. It's a beautiful picture that his word presents, but it almost seems to the outside world that we're attempting to witness to and share our faith with in the hopes that they would join in this relationship too, that they seem to scratch their heads at what we're meaning when we say that. And I think a major reason for this is that we as the church haven't done the best job helping them understand and communicating that to them. For instance, you have individuals like the high school student that will make the statement, oh, I'm single because I'm in a relationship with Jesus. And let me tell you, as a student pastor, sometimes I question, like, what exactly do you mean by that? Like, I know Jesus is the stereotypical Sunday school answer that we throw out when we don't know what to say. But trust me, some of our high school students, Jesus isn't the only reason you're single. And so take that as you will. And all joking aside, there's different statements and phrases like that that we kind of have heard or attribute and continue to use. But I think it shows that not only are we clouding what it means to the world around us, is they're like, what do you mean you're romantically involved with this guy who lived 2,000 years ago? What does that look like? But I think it also shows that we as a church may not understand how to refer to our faith this way either. See, it's almost a tradition that we're ushered into as we place our faith with Christ. We come forward down to the altar. We make that known to the church or to those around us. And we see other individuals within the walls of this congregation start to say that statement. And even maybe through a lack of discipleship or a lack of being plugged in, we hear them say that, but we don't truly understand what they mean. But we see, well, all these other individuals are saying it, so it must be right. So I'm going to make that statement myself. But little you know, the person next to you is like, well, I don't really know either. And then we start to make those statements or maybe on the other side you do know the weight or at least once did of what that statement possesses and means but just like some of the family traditions it's something that we get so accustomed to that we lose sight of its importance and significant and we just say it as something that we do in passing almost like we do when people ask us how we are and we say I'm doing all right and I believe both of these are a major disservice Because we see describing our faith in this way shows a true depth of care, intentionality, and love that our Heavenly Father has for us and that we should in turn show to Him. So my goal for our time together today is take what we've almost flattened to a a 2D picture of a, a statement saying I have this relationship with Christ and hope to round it out into the beautiful picture that God's Word paints it to be. And to do so, we'll be diving into Exodus chapter 33 this morning. If you're unfamiliar with God's word, Exodus is the second book. So if you just open up the cover, you'll have Genesis there. Flip over one more to Exodus. It's right in there. 33 should be towards the back of the book of Exodus if your Bible is put together correctly. And hopefully it is. We have some of our students that seems like pages have gotten mixed, matched, and around. And I'm like, all right, we'll just roll with it. We'll help you find where you need to go. 
But before we dive into Exodus 33 and as you're turning there, we see there's several facets of our relationship with God that he describes within his word and that we can look at. But for the sake of time today, I'm going to look at one that I believe adds a great depth of definition and dimension to this topic. And that's the idea of fellowship. Now, fellowship is a word you probably have heard before in a church setting, but most of us don't have it in our common vocabulary outside of these walls. Or maybe you grew up in a church that had a fellowship hall, but I believe it's a word that many of us have just like when we describe this relationship with God, we may have lost the understanding of it. And I, I think it's a disservice that we don't use it in our vernacular as much because the way it describes and paints the picture of relationship, I think, is very unique. You see, fellowship is all about a friendly association. A companionship, a camaraderie, and a commonality in regard to interest, as well as a singular purpose that the individuals are going after. And I believe scripture describes our association with God in this way and his followers. We see that plainly in 1 John 1.3 when God's word says this. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. So we see as the Apostle John writes this epistle to the various churches in the area, he's saying the goal of this letter right from the get-go is that everything we have seen and heard we're sharing with you in the hopes that you join in the fellowship with us, not just as the apostles, but also with God the Father himself and with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's why he wrote to them. In that, and I believe that that statement itself shows us the true dimension of what this fellowship in our faith is meant to be. It's not just a private and personal relationship that we have with God. Yes, it is in fact that, but it goes beyond that because it's a public relationship we're called to share with our brothers and sisters in Christ as we go after the singular mission of loving God and loving others. And while I could spend a ton of time talking about the public aspect of our relationship, today I really want to focus on the fellowship that we have with God. So we see that if God himself instructs us to view this relationship and this sense of fellowship, we need to ask, what does that look like practically? What does God's word say that looks like? How does it show us to live this out? And I believe that's where Exodus 33 comes into play with this because I think it shows us this fellowship at work and at a depth that it can be experienced. So let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1 of Exodus 33. We see God's word says in Exodus 33, starting in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people who you, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I have swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it to you, and I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out all of your enemies. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on their ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. In verse 7, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp far away from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the camp, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door. 
and watched Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his own tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Verse 17. And the Lord, Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim my name to you, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I am gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where I sh you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So like Seth alluded to earlier, Exodus 33 is probably many of you guys' life chapters of Scripture that you have ascribed to and say, this is my favorite. And I know I say that jokingly, but there's a lot of truth that we can gain from this passage here. And if you're unfamiliar where we find ourselves in the book of Exodus, Exodus 32 is where the golden calf incident takes place. For those who may have not grown up in church or in Sunday school, the golden calf incident is where after God had led his people in deliverance out of Egypt in captivity, they have crossed the Red Sea, they've been wandering in the wilderness, God brings them to Mount Sinai, takes Moses up on the mountain, begins to give him the instruction for his people that they're to follow after as they are his people, and he is their God, and they grow impatient waiting, thinking maybe Moses has been murdered or killed or maybe he's been taken away by God, and so they go to Aaron and say, we need something to worship as we wait. And so the gold they had received from the Egyptians, they melt down, fashioned into the form of a calf, and began to worship it as an idol and present sacrifices to it. So what we see in the beginning of chapter 33 is after God and Moses have witnessed these things, this is God's response to their action. And this leads us to our first point for this morning, which is the disconnect in fellowship. The disconnect in fellowship. As I said, all throughout the Old Testament, starting with Abraham, passing on to Isaac, and then on to Jacob, all the way to where we find ourselves with the Israelites in the wilderness here, God has always kept a remnant and a people for himself through the Israelites and their lineage. He made a covenant with them saying, if you follow after me, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
And he had a promised land for them. And that's where they were on their way to. They're in the midst of the journey. That's what an exodus is, a journey as they're going forward from captivity in Egypt to freedom within the promised land. And we find them in the midst of that journey. And up to this point, God had been present with his people, leading them in a pillar by cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in fellowship and care towards them. But here now we see things are seemingly to head in a different direction going forward. You see, God informed Moses at this current time his plan was to no longer travel with the Israelites. He said, the promised land is still yours, and you'll still be delivered, but I'll send an angel on my behalf to do it because I can't be in your presence because I'm worried about consuming you all in your sin. So we see where God was once present and connected with his people, now there would be a disconnect in place and plan instead. And it's that very sin that they committed against him continually throughout this journey that has led to this point. And their stiff-neckedness in this moment that led them to a point of worshiping a very idol that God sought to destroy in the plagues of Egypt. So we see the Israelites initiated this disconnect with their sin. And God followed through by changing the plan to send them out away from him. And we can see this disconnect represented physically in the fact that the tent of meeting was not set up in the midst of the Israelite camp where God would dwell in the middle of his people, but rather he instructed Moses to set off at a distance far away from the camp to symbolize, I can't be with you in this moment because of your sin, but I am distant from you. But there's something I want you to notice there. Because while, yes, there is a disconnect in the present fellowship, that doesn't mean that there was a dissolve in the potential future for God's people. What do I mean by this? You see, God could have easily instructed Moses to take all the facets of the tents of meeting, to burn them, to break them, to scatter the ashes, and to close the door on fellowship with them and say, I am done. There's no longer the opportunity there. But instead, he continues to instruct Moses, hey, set up the tent of meeting at a distance, and everyone who would seek me can enter into it. But there was a cost at this point. And that brings us to our second point this morning, which is the distance for fellowship. You see, there was a disconnect in their fellowship because of their sin. And now because of that, there is a distance to obtain that fellowship again <coughs> as they had to cross this distance. So while there is a present disconnect between God and his people, we see there was also the potential for a reconnection in the fact that he allowed a place for his people to meet and to fellowship with him once again. But instead, now there was a divide and a distance that had to be crossed in order to find that connection once more. So this wasn't something one could just idly stumble into, Right? They couldn't just sit in their tent on their hands and hope for this to take place. No, it took an intentionality and a desire to go across the distance to enter into the tent of meeting and to find that fellowship once again. And fortunately for us and for the Israelites at that time, we see that Moses was one such man. Despite the disconnect that was currently felt as God positioned himself on the outskirts of the camp and the greater reality that was ahead of them on the horizon that he would no longer be present with them. And despite the distance physically he had to cross, we see that we don't know exactly how far it was. But the fact that it iterates several times in the text that it was far off at a distance. We know there was a surmountable distance he would have to cross to get there. We see Moses was willing to make this trek to the tent of meeting. 
in the hope of rekindling the fellowship that was once had between God and his people. Unfortunately for Moses, we see that God met him at the other side of this divide and began to speak to him upon his arrival. And we see this fellowship between God and his people begin to be restored. And it's in this conversation in meeting between God and Moses that we come upon the final point for our text today, which is the depth of fellowship. The depth of fellowship. You see, initially there was a disconnect because of God's people's sin in their fellowship. We see that there was a distance to be crossed for it to be reinstated. But now we see as Moses was willing to cross that distance, there is a depth of fellowship that is presented here. And as I mentioned, once Moses crossed the divide, God's presence descended upon the tent of meeting. And he spoke to Moses about the issue at hand, namely the Israelites' sin in the past and the present plan of going forward in a different direction. And we see through this conversation that Moses intercedes for his fellow Israelites, pleading God, saying, hey, if I found favor in your sight, allow it to not only be be me, but remember this nation and these people. They are your people. This is your nation. So continue to be with us. You're what makes us who we are. Apart from you, how can we be distinct from the world? You are the one we need to be with us. And we see that God responds in grace in favor, in agreement with Moses, and desires to go with them once again. So in this conversation, we see that there was once again, where there was once a disconnect in that fellowship between God and his people, things did not stay that way, and the potential for a future fellowship was no longer a hope, but made a reality in this moment. But that's not all we see through this conversation because it also gives us a glimpse and a look to the depth of fellowship that Moses got to experience with God at this time. We see verse 11 tells us that Moses and the Lord spoke as men who were friends. And it uses the phrase as speaking to someone face to face. And it doesn't mean literally literally there because God himself says later on in chapter 33 that you cannot see my face physically because no man can see it and live. But what it's doing here is it's an idiom to explain how close these two individuals were. Like if I were to come down from the stage, shake your hand, and talk to you face to face, that's the proximity that's communicating here and the closest being between a man and his friend. And so we see There's this connection and fellowship felt in this depth that Moses got to experience. And the question is, did the rest of Israel get to experience the same depth of fellowship that God and Moses had at this present time? And to that, I would say no, they did not. You see, despite the disconnect and fellowship between God and his people being restored at this moment, they did not get to witness the same depth of fellowship that Moses experienced at the tent of meeting and afterwards being in the cliff of the rock, seeing the glory of God in a fraction of what it is. And the question you may be wondering then is why? Why did they not get to experience the same thing Moses did? And one person may ask, was it due to a lack of understanding or knowledge on the part of Israel? And I don't believe this to be the case. We see verse 10 leads us to believe that the Israelites were able to recognize God's presence as it descended in the cloud upon the tent. And they were able to recognize the appropriate response was to worship him. So it's clear that it's not a lack of understanding on their part. They recognize God, recognize the response to him. So what was it then? Another person may say, was it because this level of fellowship was an exclusive invitation to Moses as the one who intercedes to the Lord? And to that, I'd say, I don't believe that's the case either. 
Look back at verse 7. It says, everyone who sought to meet with the Lord would go to the tent, meaning this was an open invite to fellowship. We see this reality in verse 11, that fact that Moses wasn't even alone at the tent. That his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, was sat in the tent even as Moses left. Joshua lingered in that moment what scholars think to be one of two reasons. Either he had such an eager anticipation that God was going to move again and he didn't want to miss out on that. He wanted to witness it and also to go and grab Moses in case it happened. Or on the other hand, maybe he was so weighed down by the glory he experienced in that moment and that depth of fellowship that he just wanted to linger there longer, to stay in that moment a little longer. So we see Joshua got to experience some of this as well. And I believe 2 Chronicles 7.14 echoes the fact that this wasn't an exclusive invitation when God says this to his people. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Notice what he, see, what he says there. It doesn't say if my prophets who are called by my name. It doesn't say if my priests who are called by my name. It doesn't say if my appointed king doesn't call, call or if my appointed king doesn't come into my name. No, it says if my people who are called by my name repent of their sins, seek my face, and pray, I will hear them. And so we see that it is open to the entirety of the people of Israel. So this allows us to beg the question again: why did the rest of Israel not get to experience the same depth of fellowship that Moses did? And I believe the reason can be found in Exodus 33 and 2 Chronicles 7.14 and the verb that they share in these two verses. And the answer is all about seeking the Lord. You see, Moses and Joshua got to experience this depth of fellowship with God because they were willing to seek the Lord and cross the distance in front of them to do so. But where were the Israelites during this time? Look back at verse 10. It says they were present each at their own tent door, meaning that despite seeing and recognizing God's presence at the tent of meeting, they did not in turn seek him and were content at remaining at a distance from him. And this brings me to the main point I have for you all this morning, which is the distance we are willing to go to seek God will dictate the depth of fellowship we experience with God. The distance we are willing to go to seek God will dictate the depth of fellowship we get to experience with God. And that's the answer to why the Israelites didn't get to take part in the same depth of fellowship with God that Moses and Joshua did. Because they were content seeing him at a distance instead of seeking him across the divide. Yes, they recognized God, but they didn't go to receive him as a friend. Yes, they worshipped God, but they didn't go to witness him as a, in a face-to-face-like way. And while, yes, they no longer experienced the disconnect and fellowship with God, they would not go to experience the true death of fellowship with him either because they were content at their own tent door. 
Now, some of you may be saying, Cody, that's a great historical story. That's a great narrative in the Old Testament. But what does that have to do with me here and now this very day in 2023 as I'm wrestling with my own faith as we see what's happening in the world around us? And the thing you have to understand is that we're all in a very similar situation and position as the Israelite people. We see that Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, meaning that despite his initial purpose in creating us to have fellowship with him, we have all sinned, gone our own way, chosen our own path to follow after. So now there is a disconnect between us and our creator and his plan for us. We see Luke 16.26, Jesus uses a parable to describe the reality that weighs ahead of those individuals that continue down that path in sin as they go to a place of agony separated from God's kingdom by a chasm that they cannot separate or cross by themselves. Romans 5.8 tells us that despite this fact and despite our sin, God loved us in such a way that he sent his one only and perfect holy son to die on our behalf. Why? Because he loved us and wanted to extend to us the free gift of eternal life that Paul writes about in Romans 6.23. And he tells us in Romans 10.9 that the way we get to accept this gift, the way that we get to walk in this forgiveness, the way that we get to enter into that new life is that we step foot out of the darkness onto his bridge of salvation that he's built to us for the the cross and his sacrifice is by simply crying out to him in confession that he is Lord and belief in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And that is what saves us. Where we were once in the depths of sin in that dark chasm, crying out for someone to save us as we extend a hand to him, he's going to pull us out. And the very cross he died on our for our behalf now works as a bridge for us to cross into the de- away from the death that we're in into our sin into the newness of life that he has for us for eternity. Now some of you may be saying to that, Cody, I know all of that. I've heard those verses before. I've even given my life to Christ, so why am I not experiencing a deeper depth of fellowship with God? And to that, I would say somewhere along the way, you stopped running the race. And again, you may say, what do you mean? We have several students in our ministry that run across country and have the opportunity to get to work with them throughout their season. And one thing I noticed that at every race, as they line up at the starting position and the gun fires, they typically have an ATV of some sort in front of the race to show them the direction to go to help set the pace to mark the course. Now imagine we're all lined up at that starting line, the gunfires, we all take off in that race, but somewhere along the lines, you stop. Who's closer to the cart paving the way? The individuals at the front of the pack or you at the back of the pack now waiting? It's obviously those who've continued to run the race set before them, right? You see, Hebrews 12 describes our life once we've been saved as a race as we run towards the kingdom of God that's ahead of us, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. That means while, yes, you may have stepped foot on the bridge of salvation Jesus has constructed for you as you called out to his name in salvation, you have to understand that we are called to continue to walk with him. So that means we have to put one foot in front of the other and continue to run this race and draw closer to him. 
That's why Hebrews 12 urges us to lay aside the weight and sin that holds us back and instead run this race with endurance, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, of whom we are running to now and running after as he sets the pace and marks the direction for us. And some of you, you hear that and you still scratch your head saying, well, then why am I not as close to him as my brothers and sisters in Christ around me? And to that, I'd say you've stopped running and allow your eyes to be focused on something else. Whether it be the lust of the heart or the desires of the eyes that have turned you to the ways of the world or an envy that you look to your brothers and sisters in Christ and the relationship they have. Something has caused you to stop in your tracks and as you're on that course, you're stood still as other individuals are continuing to run after him. It's because they understand that the distance they are willing to cross to seek God will help them achieve a greater depth of fellowship with him. And we all need to understand that. And yes, while you may be saved, you've lost sight of the one you're called to follow after. So I urge you to turn your eyes back to the Lord. And just the author of Hebrews encouraged, lift your drooping hand. Strengthen your weak knees. Follow the straight paths he has before you so what is lame may not be put out of the joint, but rather healed. That that life that feels disconnected can be healed as you call out to him once again and continue to run after him with his strength and his endurance as you fix your eyes upon him. And for others of you in this place, maybe you're not complaining as you've halted in the race, but you find contentment in it just like the Israelites did as they worshiped from a distance. And to you, I ask the question, why? Why stay there? Yes, you may recognize God, and you may even worship him in this place, but understand he has called you to a far greater relationship than someone who worships at a distance. No, he wants to see you as a man sees his friend. He is a father who loves his children, who wants them to sit at his table with them. This isn't just for someone who is a mentor in your life. It's not just for a pastor in this pulpit. It's not for that celebrity and Christian you follow online as you rejoice and you hear a great message from them. No, understand God has a message for your life as well, and he encourages you to meet him in the the door is open to everyone as John writes in 1 John he says this is for the hope that all of you would join in the fellowship not just with us not just with the pastors on our staff no but to join in fellowship with our Father and our King and our Lord and our Savior that's an open invitation to you and he desires to meet with you so why do we not desire to meet with him in the same way he's rescued us from our sins He knows our names. So why don't we want to reside with him? And I know there's a third party in this place as well. Or some of you complain and you're halting and you need to fix your eyes upon him. And some of you have contentment at a distance. You need to have your eyes open to his glory once again. I believe there's individuals in this place that there is a distance still ahead of you. But it's still a chasm. And the reason there's not a bridge in place for you to run the race is because you're not on the team yet. You see, this fellowship we get to enter into is not something we do by our own means, but it's slowly through the fact that Christ has interceded for us on the cross and continues to do so in our sin and continues to forgive us and give us new grace daily. 
And just as he calls the Israelite people, his people as they follow after him, he calls us to the same thing, but you have to make that confession and belief in your life of him as your Lord and your Savior, Savior and believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You can't reconnect the fellowship if it was never connected in the first place. And you may say there's too great a chasm in sin, of sin in front of you and too high of a mountain to climb to that, I'd say, look at the Israelite people. Look at the sin they committed in Exodus 32 and the repercussions for it in Exodus 33. But despite that, God still loved them, forgave them, and continued to lead them throughout their life. And I know he can do the same for you in this place. Not by your own means, but solely through his sacrifice on the cross. And he did it because he loves you want you to follow after him. The question is, 